Well, I did not anticipate this message take two weeks, but last week we didn't get as far as we had hoped. But we're doing an introduction to the book of Philippians, going to do a study of the book of Philippians, but we're in Acts chapter 16, looking at when Paul went to Philippi and the church was originally started. So Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 6. Now, when they had gone through uh, Phrygia, the region of Galatia, and forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, they went to Mycenae, then essayed to, go to, uh, then essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And then passing by Messiah, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothrace. Um, wow, I can't get that one out this morning. That city, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, in a colony, and we were in the city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended to the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she sought us, saying, If ye judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And so this is when Paul arrives at Philippi. And in getting ready to study the book of Philippians, obviously I want to start with some background information. So we started with the man Paul, who God chose to be the penman for the book of Philippians. Who remembers some of the facts we looked at last week about Paul? Susan. He was a highly educated man, unlike Peter, James, and John, who were fishermen. And as you read the writings of the different men, you can even see the... the uh, in their writings, the education level with which they wrote. Um, how many times have you had to go back and read the book of Romans two or three times to understand what Paul is saying because of such deep doctrine? Right? But when you read through Peter or John, one of the reasons why a new convert, many times we ask them to start with the book of John, is because it's a very simplistic writing is it not is it not very easy to understand sure it is because john was a fisherman but we also said although these men had different education different backgrounds different understandings different vocabularies god in his infinite wisdom used each of these to pen his very words. Each of them were moved by the Holy Ghost as they penned these words, which we're going to look at more in Sunday school, uh, Lord willing, today, about how God inspired his word. So before Paul, when he was called Saul, who again was a Pharisee, who was a very educated man, what do we find him doing? Persecuting the church. Very good. Now, in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is being stoned, we find the, them putting their coats at the feet of Saul. 
in Acts chapter 9 and the conversion of Saul as he's heading to Damascus again with letters to again persecute Christians. He meets Christ on the road to Damascus. And we talked about the conversation between he and Christ when Jesus said, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. We're talking about the conviction that Paul was feeling. And part of that, I, still, I, I truly believe, was from Acts 7. As he watched Stephen die, Stephen was not angry. Stephen was not revengeful. But Stephen says, Father, forgive them. Just as Christ had said from the cross, Father, forgive them. So Stephen follows that example as he's dying. And I believe that there, there was such a genuineness to Stephen's message and Stephen's death that this brought Paul, who was now, or who saw at the time, under great conviction that he's wondering, who is this Jesus? Who is he really? Could he really be the Messiah? And I believe these questions were already stirring in the heart of Paul, heart of Saul, when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Then we saw, after he, his conversion, he was separated for three years. We saw that in Galatians chapter 1. And who did Paul have a heart for? Who did he desire to be saved? The Jews. But to whom had God called him? The Gentiles. Now, it's interesting because Paul never left his desire to see Jews saved. However, he understood God called him to a specific ministry to the Gentiles, and he fulfilled that wholeheartedly. You see, just as Saul had such a zeal for God before he was saved, thinking that he was doing the right thing for God by persecuting the church after he understood the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and he received Christ as Savior, Paul gave everything he had to preaching this gospel that he once persecuted. So Paul now is on his second missionary journey. With whom did Paul travel on his first missionary journey? Barnabas. And why are Paul and Barnabas not traveling together now? All right, because John Mark had left the team during the first missionary journey. When they're getting ready to leave again, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. And Paul says, no. And the dissension became so great, they decided to split and do two teams, Barnabas leaving with John Mark, and Paul gets a new uh, individual accompanying him, who is Silas. All right, then we looked at the text, and we saw who is the writer, the human writer of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke. And we looked at, <coughs> leading up to this point, Luke was saying, they. But then when they come into uh, the transitions right here in the passage we read, when you go to um, verse 7, after they were come to Mysia, and they passing by Mysia, verse 8, and you go down to verse 10, and after he had seen the vision immediately, we endeavored to go into Macedonia. So, a simple look at the grammar tells you what changed at this point. Luke started traveling with them. 
And then there's a time when Luke um, was, he stayed in Philippi in chapter 17, but then rejoins him in chapter 20 and verse 5. And again, we tell that by the pronouns going from they to we, because we includes me, right? And they does not include me. So if Luke is writing this, when he's saying they, that doesn't include Luke. But when he says we, that includes Luke. Very simple analysis of the words. By the way, again, this is one of the many reasons why the very words matter. We can see exactly when Luke joined the team. So now he's given a first-hand account, not a second-hand account of what happened. All right, then we looked a little bit at the city itself. Anybody remember when Philippi was founded? Probably not, but I'll just quiz you anyhow. Yeah, I know. Nobody cared about what date it was. It was 357 B.C. Anybody remember who it was named after? Yeah, I didn't think that one landed either. It's named after Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. When did it become a Roman colony? Which, by the way, our passage tells us even it was a colony. In verse 12, a colony, and we were in the city abiding certain days. So it is a Roman colony. Anybody remember what year it became a Roman colony? All right, good thing we're not taking the test on this. 42 B.C. So the citizens enjoyed a dual uh, citizenship, and Paul uses that in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 320, to help them understand our dual citizenship, if you will. As Christians, we are citizens here on earth and citizens of our country, right? But more importantly, we are citizens of heaven. But we still got to understand we do have that dual citizenship. So while we are citizens of heaven, we have responsibilities of citizens as the United States of America, right? You don't believe that, try not paying your taxes and see what happens to you. There is a man who um, was in evangelism uh, who would go t teaching about creation science who apparently didn't think that he was supposed to pay his taxes. And I don't know the whole situation, but I do know this. He sat in jail, uh, so <clears throat> you have a responsibility to do that. We have a responsibility to vote. We have a responsibility to government, right? Then they had a rich, fertile soil and gold mines. So you would think that this was a very rich city. But what do we learn from Scripture as Paul is writing to Corinthians about the offering that he's trying to take for Jerusalem? He talks about the churches of Macedonia, and he says that they are very poor. So it's a very poor city. Unlike Corinth, it was a very rich city. Now, isn't it interesting, and there is not a direct correlation, but it does seem many times when God blesses, we lose focus of God. Many times, people who are rich don't care about worshiping God. They're satisfied in what they have. And yet you see the church at Corinth having all these problems that Paul has to correct. And the church at Philippi, while it was not without problems, and we'll discuss that later, it really, the whole letter, most of the whole letter is truly an encouraging letter to rejoice in the Lord there are a few times where he has to correct a, a few things that were going on, but 
it wouldn't be a group of assembled believers if you didn't have at least a little bit of something happening, right? I mean, you got sinners together, and there's always going to be uh, some kind of dissension, unfortunately. But I'm glad that we have very minimal here, at least, as, at least to my knowledge, we do. They were exempt from taxes. Everybody wants to move to ancient Philippi now, right? They were exempt from taxes. Again, maybe because they were so poor, I don't know. It could have been part of their, as I said last week, it could have been part of the Roman stimulus package. I don't know why. I didn't go studying it. But, you know, just the same as we do today, trying to stimulate the economy, uh, governments all throughout history have done things to try to get things moving. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought they had rich, fertile soil and gold mines. Yes. Anybody ever meet um, a miner? I've met several. They're never rich. It's the people they work for that are rich. So just because there's a miner uh, and a gold mine doesn't mean that they get the gold. Okay? There was a medical school there, and it's debated if it was the school Luke attended. I don't know. Scripture's silent on it, and I don't believe that there is any... um, extra biblical evidence that it was the school he attended, but we do know Luke was a doctor, which means he went to a medical school somewhere. Could have been this one. We don't know. All right. Then we're looking at the city. We also talked about the population. Anybody remember the population of Philippi when Paul arrived? Nope. All right. I'll give you a hint. Our population here in Havelock, well, I'm still going to go with the 20,000 until we get this debate settled with the census department. So we're going to say 20,000. It is 10 times larger than Havelock, which would make it 200,000. That's a big city. Even in today's terms, that's a large city. So here Paul arrives at Philippi. The time the church was started, the time that we're reading here in Acts 16, is somewhere around AD 50, okay? And so we read about Lydia, the seller of purple. And let's go ahead and start again at verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple, the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus to come out of her, and He came out the same hour. Let's stop there for just a moment. Was what this girl crying anything wrong with what she said? These are the the servants of the Most High God which show us the way of salvation. Is there anything wrong with that statement? The answer is no. Why was Paul grieved? Because she was demon-possessed. And should it be a demon proclaiming this? No. And also, although it was a true fact, Was the demon doing it because he wanted the gospel to be preached? I guarantee not. It probably was done in more of a mocking way. All right? All right, let's continue on in verse 19. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gain 
is what Gaines was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them in the marketplace and their rulers and brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Let me stop again. When we preach against the sins of the world, why does the world typically get upset? Many times it's for the very reason these individuals are getting upset. Now understand, this girl gets saved. She has this demon cast out of her. They're upset, not because she's now following Christ, but because their material gains, their money is gone. So when we preach against alcohol and we see bars closing, are the people really upset about the alcohol or are they upset about the money? Many times it's the money. When we preach against the strip clubs and we see strip clubs being closed, is it about women showing off their bodies or is it about money? Understand the world's motivation for standing against us many times is about money. Matter of fact, today we're going to stand and we're going to proclaim that life is a gift from God. Now, those that think that we should murder babies, is it many times really about the fact that they think that it's not a life or is it about money? Many times it's about the money. And they convince the poor mother that it's about her money too because there's no way you're going to afford to be able to take care of this child. And it's going to be such a burden on you, blah, 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 blah. Plus, let me tell you, the doctors are making good money. They don't want it to go away because they're making money off of it. Follow the money. This past Wednesday, our General Assembly did a second reading on the medical marijuana bill. Apparently, somebody objected to it because it's going to have its third reading on the 7th. And we're talking a Republican majority about ready to legalize medical marijuana in the state of North Carolina. And let me tell you something. It's about the money. Our legislators probably are going to pass another bill this year. And by the way, if you want to call them and let them know that you don't want these, or I know uh, God and Country Christian Alliance is planning a trip there Wednesday, and I know many of you won't be able to make it because you work, but to go talk to them about these issues. Another one they want to do is sports gambling. They want to legalize sports gambling in North Carolina. And the third one that they're pushing through is Medicaid expansion. And let me tell you something. Yes, we're talking those that claim to be conservatives, but all three of these have big, big dollars attached to them. And it has nothing to do about principles of what is right and what is wrong. It is all about the money. Matter of fact, I think some of the legislators would even admit behind closed doors, maybe a few, that it is wrong. And by the way, on the second reading of the medical marijuana bill, I think it was five, maybe six. I don't want to, I know it was less than 10 legislators voted no. Out of 120 in the House, less than 10 voted no. Money speaks, folks. This is why. When we go to the polling place, we got to stop listening to their flowery speeches and all their promises and look at their character. Because until we start putting people of integrity in office, people who can't be bought, we're going to continue to have the same problem over and over and over again. So, let's go on. 
we were at, let's start at verse 20, and brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rinsed off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, receiving had received such a charge, thrust them in the inner prison and made their feet fast in stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. Interesting. Instead of, oh, woe is us. Here we are trying to serve God, but we're being persecuted. Woe are we. Oh, I can't believe this is happening. And whining and crying and complaining. And folks, I'm guilty of it as many times as anybody else. When things go wrong, instead of still having joy, we tend to want to focus on the problem, focus on the circumstance, and start complaining about the circumstance. But here Paul and Silas, sitting in jail, are singing praises to God. Because God still hasn't changed. And you and I can praise God at any time. Verse 25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed, and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors opened, and every one's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came and trembled and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and all that were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized and he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into the house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing God with all his house. So, Here's who Paul starts a church with. Lydia, a seller of purple, a girl who had been a demonic, and a jailer. These are the first converts he has in the city, and this is how he starts the church in Philippi. Aren't you glad that God can save anybody, God can change anybody, and God can use anybody in his work? Because that's not exactly the crowd that I would think I would want to assemble to get the work done, but that's the crowd God assembled to start this work in Philippi. Let's go down to verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant, saying, Let these men go. And the keeper of the prison told this unto Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. Now they thrust us out privately. Nay, verily, let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words in the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Now, I bring this up because Paul was, okay, they say, Go, look at the charges, go back to verse 21. They teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. We're Romans. Well, they never checked to see what the citizenship of Paul and Silas were. So they beat them, assuming that they're Jews, which Paul was a Jew, right? But he was also a Roman citizen. So when they come then the next day and say, all right, you guys can go, 
Paul's like, no, 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 not happening. I am a Roman citizen who's been beaten, uncondemned, and they're going to come explain to me why. Now, what is my point? Remember I said we have a dual citizenship. Christian, we need to understand, while we are citizens of heaven, most importantly, we are still citizens of the United States of America, and we have God-given rights that our government is to protect, and we have a responsibility to use those rights and to, to declare those rights properly at the proper time. And that's what Paul is doing, okay? We have a right to bear arms, right? Don't roll over and let the government take your arms. It's a God-given right. We have a right to free speech. Don't let the government tell you you can't talk. And by the way, the further we go down the line, the more I see people capitulating to this giving up their free speech. I had a man contact me saying that he will not be able to participate in the Stand for Life rally today because he is on the board of a pregnancy center that has an agreement that you're not allowed to go to any type of rally that stands against abortion. And I wrote him back saying, that's a very disturbing policy. Why would the board adopt such a thing? But here's the problem. I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't be on the board or I'd, I'd, I'd vote to change it because why do we want to give up our free speech? Now, I understand those of us that wore a uniform to a certain point had to give up parts of our free speech because, well, we chose to. We didn't have to, I guess. But anyhow, Paul used this as a way to show, hey, I am a Roman. I was treated wrongly. And it's not that Paul was sitting there, you know, my rights, and he wasn't that kind of guy, okay? But he's trying to help show, <clears throat> use his uh, rights in a proper fashion. All right, so the church was started around A.D. 50, and it's about 11 years later, as Paul is writing back to the church at Philippi in the book we now call the book of Philippians. So the date of the writing is A.D. 61. And why am I telling you that? I don't know, because apparently nobody's paying attention to the dates. But it gives you an idea. Paul, at this point of writing this, is now in house arrest. So let's go to Acts 8, uh, 28, please. Let's flip over a few pages to Acts 28. In Acts 28, verse 30, the Word of God tells us, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came into him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So he is in house arrest. Okay, and he writes what we refer to as the prison epistles. We call them the prison epistles because Paul is imprisoned. Now, he's not in prison as we think of the typical prison of the time. He's not in a dungeon. He's not, you know, in this dark, dingy place. He's in a house arrest. Okay, still not a good position to be in. But he is able to have people come and go and talk to them. And that's how he gets the letters and whatnot. But what other epistles or letters to churches did he write at the same time? Or near the same time during this two-year period? The other prison epistles, which are? All right, well, I guess we need to go down a breakdown of the Pauline writings. 
What are the other prison epistles? Ephesians, Colossians, and then one written to an individual, Philemon. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. The occasion of the writing. When the church heard of Paul's arrest, they sent a gift at the hand of Epaphroditus. While at Rome, he became sick. And when he was better, Paul sent him back with these letters of thanks. So the church hears Paul's under house arrest. Oh, well, you know what? We appreciate Paul and his ministry. And and, I mean, think about it. What if they heard the gospel if Paul and his team had not gone to Philippi? Would there be a church at Philippi if Paul and his team had not gone there? So when they hear Paul is under arrest, they want to be an encouragement to Paul. Now again, this poor church is taking an offering for the saints at Jerusalem. Who's the ones that sit there and think of the need of Paul and say, we want to be an encouragement to him. So they take this offering, this gift, and send it with this guy to go see Paul. But while he's in Rome, he gets sick. And so he gets nursed to health, and then Paul's going to send him back to the church at Philippi, but he never sends him empty-handed. Paul always has to write a letter with it, and that's how we get the book of Philippians, because he's thanking them for this gift. Okay, well, then knowing that it's a thank you letter, you're probably going to find a lot of complimentary things in it, right? But you know what's interesting to me? The Apostle Paul had such a concern for the churches that even in this thank you letter, there were a few problems in the church of Philippi, and he goes ahead and addresses them. It shows the relationship that he had with the church and the respect the church had for Paul that he could even in a thank you letter address certain issues that needed to be taken care of. That is the type of relationship we need to have with each other, that we show each other our love and our respect and, our, and grace to one another so much that when there's an issue that we need to deal with, it can be dealt with graciously. All right, so what is the theme of the book of Philippians? I hope everybody knows this. Now, that was the occasion of the writing, but what's the theme? What's the what's his major theme of the book? When you read through the book of Philippians, what do you see throughout the entire book? Joy and rejoicing, yes. Theme of the book is joy. But as I said, while he's thanking the church for the gift, he does correct rivalry and personal ambition. Let's look at a few of these. And of course, as we go through the book, we will look at them in more detail. But again, this is kind of an overview and some background history to help us understand. So as we go through verse by verse, we have a better understanding of the entire context of the book. So let's go to chapter 2 of Philippians. Chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Paul writes, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being a one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So he's saying, don't have a self-ambition, but be one that serves others. Let's go over to chapter 4 and verse 2, and we'll see this rivalry. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I, I beseech... Um, 
Eudeus and beseech Synthache that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So, and he says, and I entreat there, thee also, true yoke fellow, help these, those women which labor with me in the gospel with Clement also with other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but he says, Eudeus and Syntyche, get this thing resolved, be of the same mind. So apparently there was some kind of contention, and Paul says to get it straightened out. Then there was Judaizers, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things or not uh, to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware dogs, beware of evil workers, beware the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. So apparently... As there were at other places, there were Judaizers trying to say that you have to keep the law, you have to be circumcised, and Paul is reminding again, listen, that's not what I taught, that's not what God teaches, and so he's again giving this reminder. And then in verses 18 and 19, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is... Is, the shame, is, is their shame, and who mind earthly things. So there's a couple things, and whether these were happening in the church or these are just general warnings to say, hey, be careful of these things, Paul again, in his care for the church, is showing him there's a, a few um, rivalries within the church that he takes care of, and he's reminding him of these false doctrines, again, I believe, because he knows that Satan is always trying to creep these false doctrines into the church. And so whether it's happening there, Philippi, or not, he's saying, beware, be careful, be alert. And by the way, it has not changed today. I know many who like to watch, whether it be on TV, whether it be on a podcast or whatever, you know, different preachers, and that's fine as long as you are strong enough in the Lord to know what is right and what is wrong. Because let me tell you something a lot of televangelists are preaching a false gospel. And you better make sure you understand the scriptures before you allow. And by the way, I don't mean that to sound as though I have a corner on the truth, okay? Because what I preach from this pulpit, you need to be a Berean and check and see if those things are so as well. So check it against God's word. Don't just listen because somebody told you. All right, a brief outline of the book. Chapter one is an encouragement to live Christ. Chapter 1 is an encouragement to live Christ. And we're not going to go through the entire chapter. We're running out of time. And we'll start next week going verse by verse looking at the book of Philippians. Chapter 2 is an example of Christ to live. Example of Christ to live. Chapter 3 is an exhortation to live Christ. And chapter 4 is enablement to live Christ. And of course, as we said, the theme of the book is rejoicing. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, which you all know, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Despite the fact that this church was a poor church materially, they were a very rich church spiritually. And it was a church that obviously had a lot of joy 
and serving Christ. It was a church that was a very giving church. We see them giving to the offering for the saints at Jerusalem. We see them giving this offering as gift to Paul when he's imprisoned. We see this church just have a joy in serving Christ. And so Christian, you and I need to learn from this that despite the circumstances, you and I can have joy. You and I can always have joy in Jesus Christ and serving him. And we also see the principle is more blessed to give than to receive. And this church obviously learned that principle. Now, again, I know this is laying down a lot of history, a lot of background, a lot of context. But I think that's extremely, I know it's extremely important when we start a book to understand the context of the book, both historically and in every other way, the, the, to whom the book was written who the uh, human penman was. Again, the God, uh, God the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible, right? But who the human penman was, what the occasion of the writing was, all these things help us understand as we now read through the book of Philippians and we study it verse by verse, having this history and this context is going to help you better understand the book itself. All right, any questions before we close? And let's close with a word of prayer.